from the Heidelberg Catechism, we read together Lord's Day 40. What does God require in the Sixth Commandment? I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Sixth Commandment, the Lord teaches, you shall not murder. The Bible makes it clear that God has great concern for our physical life. God made man in his image. Despite the fall into sin, we are God's representatives on this earth. And so God has put a very high value on man's life. From the earliest times God taught man, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. It has a lot to say to us, as Christians living in the 21st century, we live in a culture of violence and death. Abortion and euthanasia are practices considered acceptable by many around us in society. So the command not to murder has practical relevance to the society in which we live. When the Lord Jesus Christ lived on this earth, he showed us a deeper meaning of the sixth commandment. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it clear that the root of murder often lies in our hearts, in envy, hatred, anger, or a desire for revenge. And so Christ taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we see that the Sixth Commandment has relevance for how we are to live as the redeemed children of God. In our sermon this afternoon, we'll see what the core of the Sixth Commandment is. In forbidding murder, God teaches us to cherish life. There's both a physical and a spiritual aspect to this. Physically, we are to maintain and uphold human life as a gift from God. We are to recognize that the Lord has numbered our days. He is both the giver and the taker of life. Spiritually, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, mercy, and friendliness toward Him. That's how we are to honor the Sixth Commandment. I preach to you God's Word under the following theme. In forbidding murder, God teaches us to love life. We are to love life because God has created life and because Christ has redeemed our lives. 
In Canada, we see many of the foundations of our society being eroded. One of the basic problems facing us is that many no longer appreciate what the Bible teaches about the value of human life. About 100,000 babies are aborted annually in our land. People say that a woman has a right to make decisions about her own body. A doctor-assisted suicide has now been legalized. People say it's cruel and inhumane to allow elderly or terminally ill people to suffer. And with that, they promote the legalized killing of the weakest, of the most defenseless members of our society. Let us not kid ourselves about what the real push for abortion and euthanasia is all about. It's often rooted in selfishness and individualism and materialism. Often a woman aborts the new life growing in her because she's more concerned about her career or her freedom. She's unwilling to make sacrifices of time and money to care for her young child. The push for euthanasia also has economic roots. We see a graying population, a rapidly expanding health care budget. Each year it costs tens of thousands of dollars to provide for each of our seniors in aged care or for those terminally ill in hospital. People think that these people don't and won't contribute to society in any kind of meaningful way. Our society's bottom line is, is that if you haven't got a contribution to make, you're better off dead instead. Our society has found a philosophical basis for this lack of respect for human life. The basis lies in the theory of evolution. Up until about 170 years ago, God was seen as the creator of life. And along came Charles Darwin, promoting the idea that man had evolved over millions of years from some simple organism into the complex person he is today. The result is that many today no longer make much of a distinction between man and the animals. Instead, they see man as a higher species on the evolutionary scale. The result is, is that many no longer respect the sanctity of human life. We should not be surprised by the devaluation of human life. The news media continually feeds us with images of death in newspapers and magazines, on the internet and TV. The entertainment world glories in violence and death. Many movies and computer games specialize in blood and guts. The result is, is that we become desensitized to the idea of death. And in doing so, we forget God created man as the crown of his creation. We forget man was created in the image of God. We forget the high value God put on human life. Yet the creation account teaches us that God made us in His image. In Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Verse 27 confirms that this is what God did. It says, God created man in His own image. So what does that mean? Sometimes people think that being made in God's image means that we look like Him. We need to remember God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical body 
like ours. So the fact that we're created in His image that does not mean that we physically look like Him. Being created in the image of God means we reflect God in our person and in our office. By man's person, we mean who man is. God created man to reflect his attributes. Just as God is good, so he made man good. And just as God is righteous and holy, he made man righteous and holy. There's also a second part to being created in the image of God. It relates to man's office or task, to what man was called to do. We know God is king over all the earth. He's ruler over the entire universe. Yet God gave his beautiful creation over into the care of man. He appointed Adam as steward over the earth and all that's in it. Commanded man to fill the earth and subdue it. To rule over the fish and the birds and every living creature that moves on the earth. To summarize, God created man so he reflected who God was and the task that he was given to do. We know that in the fall into sin, we have lost much of what it means to be in the image of God. We're no longer good and righteous and holy. We no longer properly exercise dominion over the earth in the way in which we should. And yet, remarkably, God still considers man to be his image bearer on this earth. With all man's imperfections, with all man's sins, God still places a high value on human life. Such a high value that he commanded capital punishment to be applied to those guilty of murder. In Genesis 9 verse 6, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. It was a command given to Noah and his sons as representatives of mankind just after the flood. It was upheld in the covenant that the Lord made with Israel. Exodus 21 verse 12 says, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. In Numbers 35, the Lord makes provision for an avenger of blood, whose task it was to put to death the murderer of his close relative. The fact that God requires the blood of those who murder is also supported in the New Testament. In Romans 13, we see that God has given the governing authorities to uphold what is good and right and to punish those who do evil. It's especially clear from Romans 13, verse 4. It teaches us that if we do evil, we have reason to be afraid. For the governing authorities do not bear the sword in vain. He's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we see that God teaches us to uphold the sanctity of human life. But what if a woman's been raped? Shouldn't she be allowed to abort if she were to fall pregnant? Or what about an 82-year-old man suffering terribly, his body ravished with cancer? Wouldn't it be merciful to give in to his pleas, to give him a little shot that would put him out of his misery? Beloved, these are emotionally charged questions. Our feelings may be that in such instances it's okay to have an abortion or to practice euthanasia. But let's examine our feelings in the light of what the Bible teaches. 
God teaches us that the length of our days and the circumstances of our life are determined by Him, not by us. In Psalm 139, David confesses, For you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And in Psalm 31, 15, David says, My times are in your hands. Thus we see David acknowledges that God is the giver and taker of life. We need to recognize that also in difficult ethical questions. Let's come back for a moment to that woman who has been raped. The major trauma that she needs to overcome is the rape itself. That's what she needs to come to terms with. If she's not able physically or emotionally to care for the child when it's born, she can always allow her child to be adopted by others. She should not add to her pain the guilt of aborting the young child conceived in her womb. Let's consider the 82-year-old man who's dying of cancer. Medication is available to manage his pain with quality care, with a loving family around him. Such a man can live out his days with dignity. In such situations of hardship, God has promised to grant us all what we need. Who knows what kind of good God can work out of such sad circumstances? God has told us that all things work for the good of those who love Him. At the time, we may not see that. But, beloved, that's no excuse to take life and death matters into our own hands. The Lord is the one who decided when we were to be born. He is the one who has decided the number of days allotted to each one of us. Since we have been created in God's image, let's leave life and death decisions to Him. It's one way to honor the Sixth Commandment. It's one way of showing we love life. In our first point, we've seen that we are to love life because God created it. In our second point, we see that we are to love life because Christ has redeemed our lives. When we're dealing with the Sixth Commandment, it's good for us to remember that it comes after the prologue to the law. The Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The command not to murder obtains more depth once we read it against the background of Israel's slavery in Egypt. When Israel was in slavery in Egypt, the Egyptians had very little regard for the lives of God's people. Because the Israelites were multiplying rapidly, their size was becoming a threat to the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh put in place a program whereby he tried to limit the strength of the Jewish people. He commanded the midwives to murder all the baby boys that were born. If Pharaoh's plan had succeeded, the nation of Israel would have gradually died out. Then Egypt would have been more than a house of slavery. It would have become a house of death. By delivering his people from Egypt, the Lord made life itself a sign of His grace for His people. And so anyone who refused to respect the life of another person 
while owning his own life to God's work of deliverance from Egypt would really be attacking the Lord's grace. As God's people living in the time after Christ, the Sixth Commandment is that much richer again. For Christ has not just redeemed our physical lives. He's delivered us body and soul from all our sins and from the power of Satan. Look at the wondrous salvation our Savior accomplished for us. He laid down the glory He had in heaven to come down to this earth for our sake. He took on our flesh and blood to be able to serve as our mediator. Christ underwent tremendous suffering during all the days He lived on earth, but especially at the end of His life. Yet His love for us was so great he gave up his life to save ours. Jesus died in agony and shame on a cross to grant us life now and forevermore. By loving us and giving up his life for us, Christ has restored us in our relationship with God. He's also restored us to fellowship with our neighbor. Christ's work of redemption gives the sixth commandment a lot more scope. It teaches us that God has not just forbidden the taking of physical life. God forbids any kind of attack against our neighbor. God doesn't just forbid murder. Christ teaches he hates the root of murder. The Lord Jesus made this clear when he was present on this earth. In the Sermon on the Mount, he taught that murder begins in the heart. He said that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and anyone who says to his brother, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The Lord teaches us that whatever causes enmity or hatred between us and our neighbor is sin. Whenever we are envious of our neighbor's possessions or success, or angry about something he has said or done, sin is there, crouching at the doorway of our hearts. If we don't deal with these types of thoughts and feelings in a godly way, we'll soon fall into the snare of the devil. Our reading from 1 John 2 teaches us how we are to abide in the light. John says, whoever, uh, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here we see that radical distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Those who hate have been blinded by the devil. They are stuck in his ways. In contrast, those who love are walking with the Lord and are doing his will. Thus we see that the sixth commandment deals with much more than just an act of murder. In this commandment, God also forbids hateful thoughts spiteful words, and offensive gestures. At school it sometimes happens that there's a student that others pick on. At work there's often someone that gets bullied. At times the comments that are made are much worse than physical blows. They cut right to the heart. They hurt immensely. They often cause a deep sense of inferiority. They breed deep resentment against those who bully and against those who allow it to happen. 
Now, beloved, we can easily make excuses for that kind of behavior. One excuse is that we're just doing it for fun. But it sure isn't a lot of fun for the person on the receiving end. Often, bullying finds its roots in the fact that the person we're bullying is different. We want him or her to conform, to be like everyone else in the group. What we need to recognize is that God made us all differently. And that's a good thing. For our different interests, gifts, and talents can be used for the benefit of all those around us. Bullying is sin. Not only can it cause deep hurt and build strong resentment in a person's heart, such treatment can ultimately turn a young brother or sister away from the service of the Lord. If you're never shown respect for who you are and picked on because you're different, at a certain point in time you're going to be tempted to leave the community that treated you so disrespectfully. The Bible warns us to be gentle with the little ones. That could refer to either children or to those who are weaker in faith. In Matthew 18 verse 10 the Lord Jesus said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And in verse 14 he said, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In Luke 17 Jesus warned his disciples of the woe that will come to him who causes such offense. Jesus said, It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. We see how seriously it, the Lord takes it when we do not show forth love to our neighbor. Our reading from 1 John 3 makes this even more clear. John attaches eternal consequences to our love and to our hatred. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Yes, beloved, our thoughts, words, and deeds today already indicate if we are abiding in life or in death. If you have anger, hatred, bitterness, or a desire for revenge in your heart against someone else, you need to repent. For in the end, such feelings and emotions will not just have an impact on your neighbor. They will destroy you. God teaches us to love our neighbor as ourself. That too begins in the heart. Begins by laying aside judgmental attitudes. By accepting one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if we may differ or think differently about certain things. More and more old nature needs to be put to death. We need to put on the new nature. In our lives we are to show forth the fruit of the Spirit who lives in us. We are to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy and friendliness toward our neighbor. We are to forgive him when he has wronged us. We are to restore those caught in sin 
with a spirit of gentleness. It's often in these areas that we struggle. It's so easy for us to stand on our rights. Our pride often gets in the way of approaching a brother or sister with whom our relationship is broken down. We're afraid of being the lesser. Or else it is our hurt that prevents us from restoring a broken relationship. We feel hard done by and so we avoid contact with him or her. Beloved, the Sixth Commandment teaches us to love life. That involves more than just the physical life of our neighbor. It also includes our communion together as brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. John says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. True love is a love that denies the self and gives to others. Paul describes this love for us in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. In the Sixth Commandment, God calls us to love in this way. Beloved, let us acknowledge the Lord God is the Creator. He has a claim on every human life. We've been made in God's image, and so we are to do what we can to defend and promote the life of our neighbor. Christ is our Redeemer. He paid the price to make us His own. Because He in love laid down His life for us, we are to respond with thankfulness by loving our neighbor. It begins in the heart with honor and respect for all those around us. True love also shows itself in words and deeds, by speaking encouraging words, by acting in a way that shows forth our care for those around us. May God help us in this by His Holy Spirit, so that we reflect Christ's image in how we deal with one another. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing from Psalm 139, stanzas 7, 9, and 13.